Totally football show. Premier League. They've only gone and played again. Top side hailed as game's greatest ever after beating bottom side. Still with City stringing the W's together like a team talk at Crystal Palace. We play a game of who would beat this Man City side and ask, could Spurs do it this weekend? There's a full preview of the upcoming matches. Sparky Hughes, charmed life at Stoke and Burnley. What are their top four chances? And what happens this weekend when the proudest man in Proudville goes to Brighton, a city you know all about, Pride. All that plus questions and stuff from abroad. It's the Totally Football Show. Listeners, it's the most wonderful time of the year. The time when you get Michael Cox. Hello, James. James Horncastle. That's me. And Adam Hurry back at a mic. Hello. How have been, stranger? Well, I've just been around listening right, to various podcasts. Excellent. Great to have you back. And just so many... Uh, I noticed there's this big topic at the moment that's kind of dominating a lot of social media about, uh, about City. I guess the two kind of overriding storylines from the midweek have been City, are they the greatest team ever? And also, how about that vindication for all the safe pairs of hands, like your Moises, your... Your big Sam's, your your Uncle Roy's. Should we tackle the city issue? Oof. And this business of... I mean, the numbers are really impressive, are they not, Michael? But yeah. I bet you're going to wrinkle your nose if I suggest they're anything like the best team ever. No, I think they've been fantastic so far. I think we've got to start looking at Arsenal's unbeaten season in 2003-04 and Chelsea's 95-point season uh, the next year because they are challenging those um, those records with their form so far. Right. They've only drawn one game. They've only dropped two points, and that was when they had a man sent off very early against Everton. Against so whenever Everton. they've had 11 men on the pitch, they've won the game. No need to check those uh, other teams, actually, because Tim Nichols has done the work for you. City are on 49 points after 17 games. Arsenal's Invincibles had 10 fewer at the same stage. And Chelsea, 04 who had the records point total, had 40 at this point, so you know, nine Fewer. Yeah, it's I mean, remarkable, that, isn't it? that Chelsea side uh, started very slowly, really. I mean, they were winning games 1-0 and, and getting nil nils and stuff. And it was only about November time, I think, when they really clicked into gear. Mm. And um, yeah, they were incredibly resilient. But uh, I mean, we've never seen a team win so many games by this point. I mean, no. it's, it's well, just 15. And the, here's the other crazy stat. I'm sure you've seen this, but Pep Guardiola now has the record for the, the most consecutive wins in the Premier League with this Man City side. It's 15, that's one short of the Spanish record, which was Barcelona, the 2010-11 season, managed by Pep Guardiola. Four short of the Bundesliga record, which was by Munich 13-14, managed by Pep Guardiola. They've also got uh, more points, or I think as many points at this stage, as they finished five other Premier League seasons with wow. in the past. That's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. All right, so... Michael, you're saying the numbers, the numbers certainly seem to indicate they are the best team ever. Would the, would the Invincibles beat them? I, that's a tough. That's a tough question. I mean, I think the that's interesting the thing, uh, <laughs> the interesting difference between the Invincibles and this Manchester City side is that that Arsenal side did have great power through the centre of the pitch. They had Vieira and Gilberto in midfield. They had Sol Campbell at the back. Uh, even someone like Dennis Burkamp was you know, a tall figure who could look after himself. City are very, very technical. You know, Guardiola hasn't really compromised in terms of adjusting to the Premier League. Last season, towards the end of the year. He started to revert back to the old city, brought in old players. But this side, you know, this season so far, it's just a completely technical 11. And to play a midfield three of Fernandinho, De Bruyne and Silva, which is two number 10s in a box-to-box midfielder, really no proper holding midfield Mm. player, I think is incredible. But I also think, in a way, that's why he might not get the appropriate amount of credit from certain people within football. Because I think what English, you know, proper football men, I think what they like when a kind of fancy foreigner comes over 
is for them to struggle at first. A little bit like Cristiano Ronaldo in a playing sense. Mm. Come over at first, be a little bit too fancy for the league, realise you have to kind of man up, to use a crap phrase, sorry. But Guardiola's not going to do that. He's going to play the Guardiola way and they're going to win the league by miles. And I think mm. certain people, your soccer Saturday types, won't like that. Well, he had that, he had that phase last season where there was an implication his methods weren't going to work. And um, people took quite a lot of glee in that. And um, he's showing them up big time. And I think in terms of placing Man City in the Premier League pantheon mm. or, or, or in any scale. A world football pantheon. Yeah, on, of yeah. course. But, um, you know, football is rife with recency bias. You know, the, the amazing goal you saw the other day was oh. the best goal you've seen this season. That's was, just how yeah. it works. So, um, But even then, the numbers are overwhelming. And um, the fact that they finally got that record, I think, is the real clincher. Really? That's, yeah, that's, that's I think the, so. The pudding wherein yeah. lies the proof. But, here. It, but it, in answer to your question, if they played the Invincibles, I, yeah. I just I, I envisage sort of Silva and Aguero sort of just running through the legs of Vieira and Sol Campbell, and then yeah. What about if they played Milan's Invincibles, James? <laughs> Well, it'd be that quite great early 90s side, with, side or, or Capello's. We, yeah, actually, you could go for either. But I mean, the one I'm more. I've great affinity with is is the is the classic early Capello one that mm. conceded about three goals all season, but also had Van Basten, Hulit, and Rijkaard up up at the other end, and uh, Savicevic and all that lot. The, the side that shut down Kreuz Barcelona in the European Cup final. Yeah, and didn't just do that. They won four yeah. nil emphatically, and and with one of the best goals I think in sort of a Champions League final ever, that Savicevic goal. Yeah, that would be interesting because I seem to remember that Milan side for all the flair and the talent that they had and how emphatically they won that final. They probably, I think, won that um, their first league championship with the fewest goals yeah. scored. It was literally about 15 all season. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, it'd be, uh, it'd, be, it'd be great if we could actually, you know, organise this, if we could just put people in a time machine so they could go back and they're all in their kind of perfect... Sadly, we can't. We can't. stuff of man <laughs> Maybe in the future, but... Uh, can I just can I just say that uh, David Silver last night, even by his standards, was unreal. Well, we'll get on to Silver in a second because there's one other team I wanted to mention. Uh-huh. What about what about okay. Jose's interside that beat Pep's that Pep Barcelona team that we were just talking about? Would they beat them? Oh yeah, I think City would would beat that side. Um, I would say they're they're better even than that uh, Arsenal side. That uh, yeah, I remember just being blown away. My grandfather is not a football fan, but I remember mm. when we had season tickets at Leeds, if Ars- that Arsenal side came up, he demanded that he would go. Um, so, you know, that's that's the seal of approval from, uh, you know, William Anthony but Horncastle. There, in so. all seriousness, when you're, when you're yeah. kind of comparing teams from previous eras, mm. if you're doing it in a, lit- in a literal way, the, the current side would always win. Mm. I mean, no side from the 90s would be able to cope with the pace yeah, I agree with and that. the fitness of, of teams today. But these, Marco, but these are slightly more recent. Yeah, I mean the inter the inter one maybe, but even the Milan side. Really? Yeah, I don't think they'd be able to cope with the Brazy Maldini. I, I would yeah, I'd like to see that aggressive something. offside trap against <sighs> De Bruyne, sort of trying to pick his way through. Also, that midfield as well. Terrifying. Yeah, that that Milan side would lose to say the the Tottenham team of today. What? Comfortably. What? what? Absolutely I think comfortably. If, if 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 that Milan side was say at their peak age um, mm. now instead yep. of in nineteen. 19- they would they would obviously be assimilated to the but, pace but, of the but, game of today and, and would be able to... sport always evolves. The sport always gets better. The, the sportsmen get better and better. It's only in football where we have this thing where players of 20, 30 years ago could teach the boys a lesson at the moment. Mm. You look at any other sport, you know, a sport like athletics where it's easy to measure and I appreciate there's some other reasons why they get better times, <laughs> etc. But, you know, no one goes, oh, you know, 
Roger Bannister, he could show Mo Farah. Because you can directly compare. And it's the same with football. No player from the early 90s would be able to keep up with I the I take your point, but much as with bands, uh, there are you know unique moments when when history and genealogy throws together a, a group of individuals and, and they make something pretty special. And that, yeah, that... I think their football skill would remain the same. If you just apply the, the modern techniques of um, nutrition, um, strength, conditioning, they would be able to... They'd be able to hack it. They would, it would be different, but um, natural footballing talent is yeah, natural I think footballing I talent. Know where, yeah. Which era the referee was coming from as well. <laughs> yeah. uh, but anyway, all right. So, but so this notion that I mean, here's Graham Smith, for example, saying, "Are uh, City the best Premier League team ever?" That, that's not. It's not ludicrous to say that just because they beat the bottom team well, in the I league. Think you have to wait until the end of the season. Mm. You know, football's about playing it over thirty-eight games and. You know, you take that Arsenal team, for example. I mean, they, they did kind of stumble a couple of times earlier in the season. They had, um, so this is the Invincible season I'm talking about, they had some poor results at home to Portsmouth famously when Perez had to buy himself a penalty. But at the end of the day, didn't didn't lose a game all season. And that has not been done mm. before or since. And mm. so if City can equal that, then they'll come into the conversation. Milan did that, of course. And, uh, Juve. As well. yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, but in the Perugia as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway, all right. Well, listen. You want to talk about David uh, David Silver and uh, and and why not? Jason Burt writing for the Telegraph and say it's a cold night. Swans. It's top against bottom. It's not one of Man City's most taxing games of the season. But David Silver is playing one of the most sublime ninety minutes I have ever seen live. It was that good. I mean, yeah. And, and Jason watches a lot of football. Yeah, he does. I'm sure he does. Uh, yeah, and what he's added to his game, David Silver, is he used to be the complete attacking midfielder apart from the fact he couldn't score goals. And now he's scoring goals and not just, you know, the goals you expect to score, an attacking midfielder you expect to score, but poachers' goals. He's getting to the mm-hmm. six yard box, he's scoring tap ins. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. and well, that the, is important. The one he, well, the first of the, the two he got the, the, the other night was from a poacher's position, but it was anything but a poacher's goal. I mean, it, it was a brilliant back heel, though. In a d- difficult position. It was fantastic. It took me, I think, three replays to work out precisely yeah. how, how the ball had gone in. It's a great cross from the other silver yeah. as well for that. And I think players in his mould who are just so wonderfully gifted and wonderful to watch and almost artistic in how they play the ball, mm. a lot of the time they suffer from that kind of lack of efficiency, that kind of getting into the box. You know, you remember what Ferguson said about Zidane, you know, wonderful player, but he doesn't truly punish teams or he doesn't truly hurt teams. Oh, really? I'd, I'd, I'd not heard that. Yeah, I, th- I think there was an element of that about Silver when he first came to England. Well, anyone who's he's improved notoriety for suggesting that Silver was a slightly, <laughs> slightly, <laughs> but, I mean, slightly underperforming player will be heartened to know that the stats suggest that this is a completely different season to anything he's done before in terms of numbers, the amount of goals and assists that he's been involved in. It's already more this season than the whole of the last campaign. Mm. I mean, there were just so many flourishes last night. Um, I think there was a chance that he had um, in between the goals he scored where he sort of ran over the ball and then got the got the one-two. And it was probably the easiest easiest chance of the lot, really. And um, he just skewed it that little bit wide. And for his second goal, there was a no-look pass from him in the build-up. He was just... Um, the technical repertoire that he was showing throughout that game, it was just kind of mind-blowing, was, really. Um, De Bruyne's free kick... Uh, was won in the, uh, by I think he shared a one-two with David Silva, mm. and it was the first one-two I've ever seen where both players were fouled in the process of doing it. <laughs> and that's that's how hard they are to to get hold of. The thing about David Silva is he's he was thirty-two in January, really, and yeah, yeah, and he's he's. Uh, this vague theory about players like that when they get into those advanced years where they start playing on autopilot a bit and everything seems to come a little bit easier for them. 
So as opposed to younger players who are playing with sort of adrenaline pumping through their veins, it, mm. every time seems to slow down for them even more so than it did before. It applies to football as to other things in life. Yeah, <laughs> yeah very much so. Liverpool take on Bournemouth this weekend and do you remember what happened last time the Reds visited the Vitality Stadium? That's right, they went 3-0 up after an hour and then Loris Karius happened and they lost 4-3. Well, with two up from Paddy Power, that sort of precarious goalkeeping doesn't matter. You can back any team in the Premier League or La Liga to win and if they go two goals up, Paddy will pay out immediately as a winner, even if that team ends up losing. Which is handy if you have Loris Karius or indeed Simon Mignolet in between the sticks. Head to paddypower.com to find out more. T's and C's apply. Win, draw, win, singles only. Exclude shops and cashed out bets. 18 plus only. Be gambleaware.org. And when the fun stops, stop. All right, so they've won 15 in a row. This weekend, then, can Spurs be the team to end that extraordinary run? It's such a big match. It's coming up Saturday. It's the evening. It's the tea time game. Nice nice slot for it. So big that I went to Wembley to see for myself Spurs in action. Oh, did you? I learnt nothing. Were you not doing sort of opposition analysis for Pep Guardiola there? What did you see, James? Well, there were lots of people running around. Okay. Uh, Not all of them entirely wholeheartedly, I felt. Mm. Brighton didn't seem to come with much attacking ambition. They did have a a brief little flurry uh, in in the second half of creating... Chances you'd call it, or creating attacking positions without really constructing a chance. But they had one or two shots on goal, but they were straight down Loris's throat, as I believe the the, the term is. Uh, is that the term, Adam? You're the master of uh, com- commentary. <laughs> well, well, when it comes to goalkeepers, you know, meat and drink. Meat, it was very uh, yeah, much meat and drink too. Bread and butter, but yeah, yeah. it all goes down their throat. Yeah. Right. And um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so, no, so, yeah, and Spurs, to be fair, they got the openers from uh, Serge Aurier, mm. strangely enough. Um, was it a shot? No, it was a cross, but it went in anyway. Yeah, it's one of my least favourite types of wonder goal. That. Right. Yeah. Okay, and then Sun uh, got the second, and you know everybody I presume went home reasonably happy. Are we? Yeah. Aside from the Brighton fans, of course. Uh, but, yeah, obviously not them. I mean, but I do wonder: yeah. is this is this kind of a thing about midweek floodlit football? Is that in mm. theory it sounds quite exciting, but mm. at, this, at this stage of the season, that these games are crammed in, right. and I do wonder if these are the sort of games that just tend to get forgotten. Mm. And then you, you might watch them again on Premier League years sometime in 2023 and go, "Oh yeah." That happened. But especially when you you know, you know consume the games in one helping on match of the day and you see 10 games at once. And it's almost like quite difficult to get your head around. Yeah. The same way I've got a theory that if, if you're going to have a shocker as a team or a player, mm-hmm. have it on Boxing Day. Because yeah. there's so many games going on. and, and there's games. saying it's a good day to bury bad news? Mike? Well, something like that. Yeah. And then there's, also, games, there's okay. games two days later. So everyone's you know yeah. moved on. Yeah, and Absolutely I think right. Boxing Day and New Year's Day, the special provision, it's almost like a mental asterisk. Yeah. That you, you, you would expect a Sunderland to go and beat Man City or something like that. But it's just strange. You know, it's a it's the most wonderful time of the year yep. in many ways. But uh, back to City taking on Spurs this weekend. Uh, Spurs have actually got a really good record in the last two years against City. Um, but what are their chances of ending City's run this weekend at the Etihad? And can I also ask, since they're part of that quartet of force, well, that quartet separated by just one point, the other teams being Liverpool, Burnley, and Arsenal. Are they going to get into the top four? I think so. Um, Will they win this weekend, or can they even can they even take a point from the Etihad? I think they can they can be competitive. Uh, absolutely. I mean, they got four points from six um, last season. Um, they showed some real kind of fighting spirit. Even though I, I seem to remember the last game, which was two two. I think City went up 
um, 2-0 and they managed to come back into that game or, although I seem to remember also that uh, Pep Guardiola was a little bit aggrieved that um, I think they didn't get um, a penalty I think was it when Walker ended up pushing over Raheem Sterling but of course they're now teammates um, oh, yeah. so um, yeah that was that was a really interesting game because Pochettino I think uh, I think he started with a back three then he went to a back four um, and he was just continually making adjustments um, and uh, it was a really interesting watch um, from that point of view but um, I think City seemed to have evolved uh, over the last uh, well since they last met in a way that sit, uh, Spurs perhaps Spurs perhaps haven't it would be quite curious to see if if again in this very attritional period whether 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 City can, can, can maintain this kind of rate of performance Is that fair? Are Spurs going backwards? Do you have a view on this, well, Adam? Or they've Michael? Been very inconsistent yeah. in recent weeks. They've been a bag of revels, as Paul Merson would say. <laughs> mm. um, it's, it's difficult to tell with them because they've obviously got up and performed very well in massive Champions League games against Dortmund and Real Madrid. <laughs> Sorry, just that, the, the, the Paul Merson revel as a football term campaign, which is going really well. It's a one-man bandwagon, but he's riding it hard. Yeah. Because he's, he's gone from initially introducing the concept of the bag of revels, which I, I don't think is original, but as being a, you know, a mixed bag, like you know the, yeah. the, the kind of Forrest Gump-esque box of chocolates. Yeah. And, and now he's using it as an, as an adjective that Spurs are a bit revelly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Technically, it's incorrect because if you, if you, anyone who's eaten several bags of revels in their right. life will know that once you get a revel in your hand, there's, there's a, you've got a fair chance of working out what it's going to be. And They're all different the, sizes. Is it a revelation every time? <laughs> <laughs> not quite that dramatic, yeah. but, um, but it's certainly not the kind of Russian roulette that he's painting it to be. So I see. just incorrect confectionary observations. It's more sense than a box of chocolates because a box of chocolates very clearly, they're different types of chocolates and they have a label on a the box. A little menu, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but quite often, yeah, okay, we'll move on. Um, but it's a fair point, Michael. But we were talking about Spurs and their, you know, their, their involution. Yeah, I mean, they've been very inconsistent in, in league terms recently, but they have got themselves up and performed very well in big Champions League games against Real Madrid and Dortmund. And if the if it's the case that they're almost having to pick and choose their games, certainly in terms of fitness, mm. um, I wouldn't be surprised if they really go 100 miles an hour, so to speak, at City this weekend. I do fear that City are just too good for them, actually. I think the, um, the defence has not looked great for Tottenham in recent weeks. I think the absence of Alderweireld, World, who I think is the best centre-back in the Premier League, right. is a huge absence. Um, and I, I think that... I'm not sure whether Guardiola will rotate, but if he does need to at some point, they've got great players in reserve. I mean, Gundogan and Bernardo Silva would get into pretty much any other team and maybe be the star players for those mm. teams. So, And having Aguero as essentially a second-choice striker, which is um, astonishing, absolutely astonishing. And and the idea that they might add Alexis Sanchez in January, which is... Oh, really? Is that There's a little bit of talk about that, which I think, in the grand scheme of things, is it's a mad. bit much. Yeah, I think so too. All right, well, it'd be interesting, especially with that Alderweireld, uh, the prognosis now being that he might be returning sometime in February, when, of course, they're going to be facing... Juventus in the Champions League. We'll, we'll get your thoughts on that, James, after I did a particularly terrible job of breathing it on, on Monday a little bit later on. Right now, though, let's leave the whole question of Man City, take a little bit of a breather, and then come back with proper managers doing a proper job at proper British clubs. Big Sam, three league games, seven points. Hodgson, six games unbeaten. Even Pards, arguably, holding Liverpool to a draw. And, of course, David Moyes, who perhaps more than anybody, would you say, 
deserves an apology. He beat Chelsea, and now he's gone and stymied Arsene Wenger's Arsenal as well. I know Michael and, and, and Adam, you both saw these uh, the the, uh, the West Ham Arsenal game. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. What did you think? I'm. The big surprise. Could you use as many because you, you you are football cliches. Could you just use as many cliches as possible? Uh, uh, in your they response? may they may sort of just naturally. Come. Okay. I'm not averse to using them, of course. Right. Um, the uh, thing that surprised me about West Ham against Arsenal was that they they were unchanged from the team that played Chelsea. Mm. This was a team who who ran their proverbials off against Chelsea. Uh, Antonio was down with cramp in the last few minutes, so I was surprised that they they went with the same team, and they did largely the same job um, in terms of frustrating Arsenal down the middle. Um, Arsenal tried a little bit more than Chelsea's kind of side-to-side probing. But um, And then after about an hour, West Ham suddenly realised, oh, hang on, we might be able to get something here. They came out of their shell a bit, started pressing the other way, and then um, Hernandez hit the bar in the 90th minute. I, I, I was convinced it had gone in at, at first glance, so yeah. thank God for uh, technology, as it turns out wasn't anywhere near. But um, it provoked a wonderful commentary line on, on BT Sport when he hit the bar because the commentator sort of screamed and the referee's watch has not vibrated uh, and which is you know a very dramatic but also very 21st century way of describing it, yeah yeah but uh, yeah very very impressed with West Ham's okay, resilience but what's what's Moyes done apart from picking Adrian instead of Joe Hart <laughs> well, and the numbers there are huge I mean they were conceding what was it uh they were conceding more than two goals a game with Joe, mm. and they're conceding less than half that in the three matches with Adrian. And those three matches have been against Man City, Chelsea, and Arsenal. Yeah, it's it's a mix of personnel and 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 a more predictable thing that he was going to do, which is simply the the team's shape. It was it was a, sh- a kind of short term patching up of their defence, which is what they needed to do. And um, so you, you look at what's happening at the back. Adrian coming in for Hart was a no brainer. He he kind of exudes calm, Adrian, compared to compared to Joe Hart at least. Um, Cresswell slotted in as kind of left-sided centre-half, which I think is that um, with the resurgence of three at the back, there's a kind of gap in the market for left-footed centre-halves, especially hmm. especially in the English ones. So he might see that as his, his, his future. Right. Is, that then, what, is that what Wenger was thinking with Monreal as well? Yeah. Playing, um, yeah. But yeah, these converted full-backs, they're no longer kind of frustrated wingers. It turns out they're frustrated centre-halves. Oh, that's nice. And then, um, and then you've got Arthur Masuaku, who was... Who, who was slowly becoming this kind of cult comedy figure at West Ham just because he kind of it was a combination of ineptitude and indifference and then he's turned into I don't know Roberto Carlos all of a sudden and um, he, he's doing a sterling job down the left he's he's definitely winning them over mm. Are you one of those people who owes David Moyes an apology Michael? <laughs> <laughs> well I mean to a certain extent it was obvious that he was going to come in and do a good job in terms of getting the defence in shape what I really thought was that they needed someone who was going to give them a little bit of a psychological boost, a bit of a classic new manager bounce. I wasn't convinced Moyes um, and his negative demeanour was going to do that. But it seems to have worked. He seems to have instilled confidence. That Friday night game they had against Leicester seemed to... I don't quite understand why, but it seemed to be quite a big thing for the club in terms of the atmosphere and mm. the supporters suddenly were just feeling good about themselves. And I was really impressed with them. I was at the game uh, against Chelsea last weekend and they went ahead five minutes in and... Chelsea barely had a chance. You know, mm. it wasn't like Adrian was having to make wonder saves. He was barely worked the whole game. Um, they didn't get a goal yesterday, but they were very solid defensively. I thought it was an interesting game tactically, actually, because um, Wenger did various things he hasn't done so far this season or before this season. He played four at the back for the first time. He played Giroud for the first time. He played Wilshire for the first time. Mm. First time in 19 months. Incredible, yeah. And he played uh, Ainsley Maitland-Niles as his left back. And this is a guy who's a you know really highly rated at Arsenal. Has come through the ranks. But he's an attacking midfielder and he's a right-footed attacking midfielder. He was played at left back. 
And Moyes had clearly worked out that this guy was not going to offer too much in possession. And West Ham's shape was really interesting because they just didn't defend that side of the pitch. They, you know, they just concentrated on, on blocking Arsenal through the centre and through the opposite flank. And you had this situation where I felt quite bad for Maitland-Niles because West Ham weren't bothering to close him down and Arsenal weren't bothering to pass to him. So he was just kind of shuttling up and down the wing. Did absolutely nothing wrong, I should say, but was almost kind of irrelevant from the game. But that was so frustrating from an Arsenal perspective because this was the first game where they had Giroud. And Giroud gives you the option of going down the flanks and getting crosses in. And it was also peculiar that you had a right footer there because Arsenal had a midfield three that was three left-footers of Xhaka, Ozil and, uh, and Wilshire. So it was this really kind of strange, disjointed game where basically nothing happened. And I think the highlight, I was watching this on TV, I think the thing that summed it up was um, the commentator went to Glenn Hoddle to ask who his man of the match was. <laughs> and Glenn Hoddle just didn't know and had to have a think about it because no one had stood out, nothing had really happened. And yet... Who did he go for in the end? In the end, he went for um, Arnautovic because, oh. because essentially because he'd worked his socks off up okay. front. Um, but he did, he did have a good game and he has, um, he has been revitalised under Moyes. And, uh, you know, I think the interesting thing, Moyes is basically a defensive manager he's good at organizing the defense they've done very very well to keep two, uh, two clean sheets against Arsenal and Chelsea but West Ham are probably going to have to take points and, and beat the teams around them in the drop zone so well, we they, now have to see whether he'll be able to change his tactics there's a there's exactly that question here David Fox says will West Ham's new tactical setup work as well against bottom half of the table sides or will Moyes need to alter things so they're, they're facing one this weekend in Stoke in Stoke who've got a really poor defensive record so you think mm. this should be an opportunity for West Ham and indeed an opportunity for Arnautovic to punish his former side if I was Moyes I'd be quite positive in the sense that I think they've got one, very good attackers, and they've also got attackers who give you different things. Mm. Andy Carroll is a completely different player from Javier Hernandez. Arnautovic is another different type of player entirely. Antonio can play deeper, is very up and down. Uh, AU can come into the team. So he's got the options there. He's got the tactical options there. And, you know, I said when he took over, I just think that they've got quite a good 11 on paper, West Ham. Mm. The other key thing that Moyes uh, has done at West Ham, of course, is playing on Saturday and not Sunday, which I think really swung the game against Arsenal. Certainly... Arsene Wenger pinpointing that uh, in his reaction to another disappointing result for Arsenal. Arsenal have uh, a bit of a solid thrown their way by the fixture list this weekend, though, with the arrival of Newcastle, who are now, I think, eight games without a win. They're in the worst form in, in the league. Yeah, and apparently this is maybe one of the reasons why this takeover is being delayed. Because... So what's happened with the... Cause the? Well, it seemed to be quite close mm. that they were, I think they were prepared to up... Um, their bid from I think 250 to 300 million but now with this um, slide that Newcastle have been on obviously um, Newcastle are becoming less and less appealing from an investment point of view we've seen it with some of the other clubs that um, yeah, got into the Premier League in recent years who at the start of the season um, had a lot of interest and were in advanced talks with um, various groups from all around the world and uh, because of that then didn't really do much business in the summer and then, obviously, they weren't equipped to compete in the Premier League. They went down and they're in a worse position than they found themselves in the first place. Mm. And they're, they're not, no longer attractive to investors. And, yeah, I think that's the, that's the concern, really, from a Newcastle point of view. All right. But it's a team, it's almost a chicken and egg. It's mm. a team that needs investment. They've got a really good manager. And yeah. as I think I've said before, I think they've got a championship 11. Yeah. You know, there's, there's no one in that side that I really think, oh... Mid-table club would take them. Maybe Perez, I quite like the look of. Marino's okay. But 
it's basically a, a championship standard team and Benitez has done his best, but unless they get in a couple of players in January, I think they're going to slip back towards the championship. Yeah. Right. This weekend, away at Arsenal, they've, they've, uh, they've lost their last nine against the Gunners. Of course, Newcastle were beaten midweek by crisis club Everton, <laughs> who are now level with, surprise, you know, revelations Watford yep. on points. They're yeah. In- and they yeah. could have got Marco Silva. I think they're, you know, they're obviously delighted that uh, <laughs> as, as Watford seem to be sliding that little bit, they're on the rise. And uh, yeah, Sam seems to have really sorted that uh, that back line out. Ashley Williams and Mason Holgate have been playing uh, very well of late. I think they've got four clean sheets in their last five. And uh, and Rooney again just uh, being decisive. And uh, yeah, it's it's curious. Lukaku scored on the same night. Um, Ending, you know, quite a, a long run, really, without uh, without a goal, and obviously a difficult uh, couple of weeks for him. But you know, Rooney's got what as many goals as as Lukaku is. Yeah, I think um, until Lukaku which, scored. Yeah, until they, Lukaku they, they scored, head yeah. To head, yeah. Which was a bit embarrassing, really. Sorry, I'm still skeptical about this Rooney thing, and I think he's in a really <laughs> weird kind of um, contradiction as a player. Because he used to be a player who could, to a certain extent, dominate a game, take it by the scruff yeah. of the neck, put his side on the front foot. What's been obvious for United and England and now Everton over the last three or four years is he doesn't do that anymore, but he does still score goals. You know, whether it's penalties, free kicks or an open play, he does just... You look at his goal scoring record, it's really good. Mm. But he's now playing in midfield because mm. he doesn't have the mobility to play up front. So in terms of what he contributes, he's gone from being a bit of a midfielder to definitely a forward. In terms of his actual position, he's gone from being more of a forward to an actual midfielder. So... You have this dilemma that England have a couple of years ago where he played rubbish for 90 minutes and yet he scored the goal. <laughs> He's just going to keep he trying playing... to score goals from the halfway line, I guess. That's probably solved that problem. Yeah. yeah. Is he playing rubbish, though, for Everton? When I've seen him in midfield, I haven't been particularly impressed. OK. Well, Everton this weekend are taking on Swansea, which will be an interesting game for Guilfie Sigurdsson, okay. among, among others. We'll talk more about the weekend's fixtures soon enough, listeners. But after this next bit, I want to hear from James on Juventus. Uh, from Michael on anything he wants to talk about, really. And Adam on the uh, GDP per capita Classico. Listeners, the transfer window's about to creak open once more. And if you think your knowledge of the transfer market is more Big Sam than David Moyes, then you need to check out the football stock market, Football Index. Football Index is a new way to profit from your football knowledge and make money. Buy players, build a portfolio, earn dividends and sell at a profit. And unlike certain players and managers, you can keep those winnings away from the taxman entirely legitimately. Because you listen to the Totally Football Show, you can try Football Index and trade up to £1,000 for seven days completely risk-free. Just head to footballindex.co.uk, enter the promo code TOTALLY, and if you don't love Football Index, you'll get a full refund with their seven-day money-back guarantee. Download the app or play online at footballindex.co.uk and become a football trader today. T's and C's apply, you must be over 18, deposit required, and please trade responsibly. Listeners on Monday will recall Germany, our German chat, how Borussia Dortmund had fired Peter Bosch and hired the man who'd had just one win all season and had just been fired himself by the bottom side in the Bundesliga Cologne. And, of course, he began with a win. Yeah, Peter Stoger, uh, their first victory for Dortmund's first victory since September, 2-0 away at Mainz. They've moved back up to fourth. It's a competitive league, isn't it? Mm. Uh, as I mentioned before, you also have heard me doing a really poor job of previewing uh, Juve's Champions League draw with Spurs and Atalanta against Dortmund. James, you're here. Sort it out. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think this is going to be a really uh, competitive tie. The Uh, Juve-Spurs one. Yeah, because, um, you know, after Spurs finished uh, above last year's champions, Mm. they now 
faced last year's runners-up. That's true. And uh, yeah, it's curious uh, the reaction in Italy to the, to the draw because um, yeah, you would you would understand them maybe focusing on Kane and Eriksson, but in classic Italian fashion, superstition, they were like, oh no, it's Llorente. He's going to come back and haunt us again, like he did exactly, like he did a couple of years ago for Sevilla, which um, ended up with Juventus, I think, finishing runners up and drawing Bayern and then going out. Um, But uh, yeah, it's it's going to be curious to see what state I suppose Mm. um, these sides are in come come February. Uh, We all know how sort of attritional the kind of winter period is is for for Premier League teams. but they've shifted the winter break in Italy this this year. Um, so, for example, they play until the 23rd. They then come back for the 28th and then January 6th. And then they're sort of away for a couple of weeks. You just wonder whether that that little bit of freshness, that little mm. bit of extra time on the training ground um, will help them. Because it was really until the mid-January of last year that it took Juventus to figure things out. And I think they already are now. Yeah. Um, and yeah, this was a, something that struck me that Juve in the group stages compared to Juve in the in the, in the knockouts last year were, was a completely different thing. And yeah. for Spurs, it's it's not doesn't look like the best time to be facing them, particularly as as you say, the beginning now to reacquire some of the solidity which mm. which characterised them before. Yeah, um, yeah, I think a lot of people didn't expect it of a player like uh, Medi Benatia, for example, who was brilliant a couple of years ago for Roma, then went to Bayern Munich, played under Pep Guardiola, but could either never stay fit or never really convince Guardiola that he was the guy to play regularly in that uh, in that defence. And yet, yeah, he's had a real return to form and they do look solid and they are defending as a team. And uh, yeah, it's it's going to be fascinating to see the sort of, um, the duel, I suppose, between Higuain and, and Aldo Weireld and, and uh, if Vertonghen, if they're, if, if they're together. Mm. And also Dybala, who's had a mm. very indifferent uh, few months, you know, very much seen as the star. Um, was propelled, I think, into the conversation, at least by the media in Italy, as, as someone who could win the Ballon d'Or post-Messi and Neymar, but hasn't scored any goals in the Champions League since the first leg against Barcelona in the quarterfinals last year. And, um, you know, is, is is the focus of quite a lot of I'd say, criticism at the moment for, for not performing. So, mm. But, as we say, a lot can change between now and February, but... Um, yeah, this this should be a, a very quite evenly matched uh, tie, I suppose. And Juventus's record in knockout stage against English sides is very poor. Um, you have to go back to 1984 mm. to find them beat an English club. Although Spurs' record against Italian sides, I'm just thinking about those, those Inter and the Milan games as well. Well, yeah, it's funny you should mention that actually because that was, I think, Massimiliano Allegri's first ever knockout game um, uh, in the Champions League when he was uh, with Milan and they were champions and they played against Spurs. And they went out um, to that Peter Croucher Ray goal in at the San Siro. So, yeah, some some dodgy omens, I would say, for mm. uh, for Juve with Llorente and that in what, mind. What about what about Atalanta's chances against Dortmund? Which, are on the face of it, they should be massive underdogs. Yeah. but not on the form in the Europa League so far. No, without doubt, no one expected them to top a group that included uh, an Everton side that had spent what more than a hundred million yeah. in, the, in the summer, and and Leon as well. Even though Leon had, had lost the likes of Toliso and Lacazette, but. They're a really awkward team to face. Um, yeah, they play a system that I don't think many teams uh, have experience of playing against. And uh, they're not what you'd expect from a stereotypical Italian side. You know, they're very aggressive, very intense. It's very up and at you. Um, and 
Luciano Spalletti, the Inter coach, was saying just before he he played them that it's like coming up against a team of basketball players because they're uh, they're all very tall, very big, and they're excellent in the air as well. So uh, I think yeah, already Stoger um, has had an impact at Dortmund. He got his first win in midweek, but mm. they really have that to turn could be it around. It for the season with him though, <laughs> it could be yeah, mm. but they really have to turn things around because. Um, yeah, Atlanta will fancy themselves if uh, if if Dortmund are on an off day or continue playing like they have done really for for much of the last few months. Mm. All right. Well, in other Italian news, just briefly, mm. uh, Milan look like they're heading towards big sanctions from UEFA over financial fair play. Yeah. Although UEFA say that any information that's been leaked about that is not necessarily true, and they haven't announced anything yet. But the notion is that Milan may have to sell uh, swiftly, and it looks like Gigi Donnarumma's going to be the player out the door yeah well this is a big storm in the last uh, 48 hours um, because um, it emerged that uh, when he signed a new deal in the summer um, that this buyout clause that was supposed to be in it um, is not in it his entourage um, have threatened legal action saying that uh, he was pressured into signing this deal um, and there are a couple of other allegations there which were very serious and at the Coppa Italia game uh, Did last night... they suggest night, that he couldn't refuse their offer? Is that what... <laughs> well, uh, I think the uh, the allegation was that he it was almost like he had a gun to his head. Right. Which obviously has not gone down well with um, Milan, the club, but mm. also the fans. Mm. And uh, before the Coppa Italia game against Verona on, on uh, Wednesday night, there was a banner... Um, which uh, basically told him that uh, he could go. Mm. Um, he said, we, hi- we hired your, we signed your deadbeat brother. Yes, keep you now. Well, go. Yeah. Yeah. Enough is enough. <laughs> and yeah, we're paying you six million euro yeah. a year. But I think uh, yeah, you could you could accuse his entourage of being opportunistic um, in basically seeing that Milan are a very fragile club in a very precarious situation, and 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 uh, yeah, they. I think their motives here are if they can null and void the contract that he signed, mm. um, then obviously you know they can take him to a PSG or a Real Madrid club, big clubs who have an interest in him. Um, I think made contact in the summer about him and need a, a goalkeeper for the yeah. future. I but, think Milan, if they can keep the contract intact, in which I think is probably likely, they, yeah. they'd, they'd be quite happy with selling him probably for a, a large sum in January, would they not? With the Well, I, I think January would maybe be uh, too soon right. um, to, to, to have a, an auction, let's say. I mean, we've got to remember PSG, who are one of the, um, the, the teams that were very interested in him in the summer, they might come under some kind of financial fair play sanctions themselves after what they, they did with Neymar and uh, Mbappe. But... Um, I mean, yeah, you could say that um, they hold all the cards now because you know, if there was a buyout clause, that obviously fixes the price. Mm. Without that, they can hold an auction. But Donnarumma has always said that he's uh, a, a huge Milan fan. And you know, it was quite moving to see the scenes before the game because the cameras were allowed into the dressing room and they caught Leonardo Bonucci, the captain, going over to Donnarumma and consoling him because he was very upset at the uh, abuse that he was he was receiving. Um, but it's just a shame because he should be the the guy that they build the, the future of that club yeah. around. I think it's really important that clubs have these kind of players that they've developed and the players mm. they've produced. And maybe one slight shame about the Man City thing, one thing they don't have, they don't have that kind of Maldini figure, John Terry figure, player who really represents the club. And that's a shame because City's, you know, 10 years ago, City brought a lot of players through. Mm. But they didn't have one, probably should have been Micah Richards really, but they didn't have one who kind of pushed on and is now their leader. I think it's a shame. Yeah, that's a fair point. 
Adam, the GDP per capita Classico, is that your title or is that an official nomination? No, that's that's what I've decided it's 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 gonna be. That's uh, taking place this afternoon. This afternoon, possibly as people are hearing these very words. Right. Uh, Who is it? Qatar versus Liechtenstein. Right. Uh, no love lost there, you would assume. You <laughs> would assume. <laughs> um, Grudge match. Uh, according to the CIA World why, Fact Book. Why are they playing each other? Uh, I don't know. I, I, I little... On a Thursday afternoon, this isn't an international it's kind one of those, friendly one of those, sanctioned window. It's one of those weird little international... I mean, Estonia did a, um, a tour of the Pacific Islands recently what? for reasons I have no... Well, I can think of lots of reasons, but... Well, uh... yeah, nice place to go, <laughs> yeah. uh, especially if you're coming from... But Liechtenstein have gone to Qatar... Yes. Or oh, are ah, there right now? Uh, I assume, I think it is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, I don't think it's a like, neutral venue. I don't think it's being held in Switzerland or anything like that, um, which would be, a, you know, a very appropriate, appropriate. Yes, yeah. 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 Um, uh, so, yeah, it's uh, according to the CIA World Factbook, okay. which is where I get most of my Hang on, information. The CIA is in the Central Intelligence Very Agency. much so, yeah. They publish a range of books now? Yeah, yeah they, every year they publish a, a list of very, very interesting facts about every nation on Earth. Really? Mm. Have you got some there? Some. Okay. I have some. Um, the most important one is that this is this is first versus second in terms of GDP per capita in the world. Wow. Liechtenstein are number one. Qatar, really? They're ahead number of... two, according to the CIA. Other sources um, place Macau at the top. So what can you do? Um, uh, yeah, Qatar, 72 times bigger than Liechtenstein. Is that right? Yeah, which, which for Qatar is some but doing. But geographically, not in population Geograph- size. Geographically, yeah, which yeah. is, yeah, again, for Qatar is, is some doing. And uh, so it should be fascinating tactical encounter, but I'll leave, I'll leave Michael to, to work out the nuts and bolts of that. Yeah, uh, they have a lot of naturalised Brazilians, Qatar. I don't know how that plays into... This afternoon's game. I think they're going to get a lot more over the next four or five years. Aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> Possibly so. And also in that region very much at the moment, of course, the World Clubs Cup, which has once again caught the imagination of football fans <laughs> everywhere. I mean, I joke about it, but you, I think, Adam, again, were actually watching yesterday, were you, as, as plucky Real Madrid managed to survive an onslaught from Al Jazeera. As you yourself tweeted, Real Madrid, they went a goal down. They were on course for the most humiliating defeat to a TV channel since they lost to Granada in 2013. <laughs> that, that took some... That took some earnest scrolling down the Wikipedia page of now defunct British TV channels before I got to that joke. Oh, really? Um, but yeah, um, uh, much like the Paul Danone situation, it was like the reverse of that. I, oh. I simply watched up until Real Madrid equalised and then turned off in disgust yeah. because who cares now? Well, you missed Gareth Bale's winner then. Yeah, I did. And uh, Real Madrid goes through to a final on Sunday with Gremio, mm. which I think they're going to lose. Just saying. Uh, Barcelona, meanwhile, will have the opportunity to go 11 points clear of them. Uh because they're playing Deportivo on Sunday, and that would be quite a margin to hold into Barcelona's following game, which is against Real Madrid. It's the Clasico. That's the weekend of. Oof. Oof. All right. That was a little window on the world, but we'll be back on uh, our cosy domestic front after this. Listeners to footballing podcasts will know that there's enough tough decisions to make these days without having to worry about which razor to use. So why don't you take the hassle out of your shaving routine by signing up with our pals Cornerstone. Never run out of blades, never need to shop again, just let them know how often you shave and they'll take care of the rest. Get £10 off your first order and find out more about your perfect shave box at cornerstone.co.uk slash totally. Lads, it's Vicar Street on Monday the 19th of March when the Totally Football Show will be arriving to bring you some live chatter and analysis and, I don't know, maybe a song or two. If you'd like to buy a ticket, 
head to our Twitter or Facebook pages at The Totally Show on Twitter, The Totally Football Show on Facebook, or you can buy it through proper ticket selling people, ticketmaster.ie. Let's talk a little bit more about the weekend and listeners' questions. Dan, for example, says, How, after 22 months of, he puts a little, you know, that steaming turd emoji, mm. after steaming turd football, uh, 22 months of it, since the semi-final defeat, dropping a formation that got the best out of our players to one that suits a few, a loss of identity, conceding three or more goals a game numerous times, worst start to a Premier League season ever. How is Mark Hughes still in a job? Well, he's the favourite to be next to go. Can you see any... He always appears afterwards, and I suspect he might be uh, this weekend doing that uh, as well because they're going to be taking on West Ham. He always appears afterwards, a little bit like you know your mechanic after he's taken a look under the hood and announced that your, your alternator yeah. shot. There is a problem; it's nothing to do with him, um, but it's going to cost you a lot of money. I, th- I think this is a you, you're you're hitting on something here. This is this is definitely a factor in why he's not necessarily on the kind of sacking or sack race radar. It's because Mark Hughes doesn't really do beleaguered like other managers have done, like mm. Billich and, and Moyes in the past. In fact, and I've done my research here, if you search for the phrase beleaguered Mark Hughes, you only cool. get nine Google hits. What do you get then? What, what's the adjective that he that he has earned? Oh, I didn't branch out into other adjectives. <laughs> okay. Defiant, Revelant? indignant. Because if you look at Mark Hughes, yeah, if, if Stoke ever got round to building a statue of him, which yeah. is increasingly unlikely, it would be him with his arms Could crossed. Could they use the Maradona one and save some money? <laughs> it's the same hairstyle, perhaps, from the 80s. The abiding image of Mark Hughes is him just standing there, arms crossed, looking utterly irritated with what's going mm. on, but not necessarily exuding defeatism at right. the same time. Or indeed responsibility. No, yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, he, he he's lacking the vital ingredient of 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 being a dead man walking, which right. is looking like he he's accepted does... defeat. Oh, okay, interesting. Um, if you were a Stoke fan, you'd be pretty fed up. Is that fair? Mm. Oh yeah, I mean they've got they've after what having what their best ever st- season statistically on them, they've gone backwards every year ever since. Yeah. Um, and I think what sixty one points in the last sixty four games. Um, it's, the question is, what next? Where do they go? Because you know, I mean, that uh, old boys' club. Well, they've all got new jobs, haven't they? Aside from Tony Pulis. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Would they go yeah. back? I don't know. Can I defend his record slightly at Stoke? Please. Because I feel that um, people forget when they sacked Pulis. A lot of people said, "Well, whoever comes next will have a really job, a really difficult job trying to overhaul the style." Mm. Not only did he overhaul the style and made them a more technically advanced team he took them to ninth three seasons in a row whereas Pulis was always 12th 13th 14th so he did the job in terms of results and style I think what we see in football these days is that basically players just get bored players are quite brattish and they essentially kind of have sulks and I think probably Mark Hughes has just got to that stage where he's probably exhausted what he can tell them you know he's done his coaching drills he's now done them into it's fifth year. And Is it play- five years he's been there? Yeah, and yeah. players are probably just a bit tired of him. And, and to a certain extent, I'm not sure that managers can be... He can be held accountable, but I'm not sure you can have a go at him too much. What because he, he basically like did a good job and he's not done much different from what I can tell. Right. I feel like he's still living off that grace period of having changed Stoke's style. Yeah. But unfortunately, it's kind of stagnated to the point where no one's talking about them at all. Um, which is the reverse of what happened under Pulis when, when when they were a notable entity. But, I mean, I do think it's reached the stage where Stokes board are going to have to intervene. And, of course, it would be very exciting to see whether Hughes uh, accepts that golden handshake that's coming his way. Top work, Michael. Uh, where are Stoke right now in the league? Uh, they're 15th, which doesn't sound that bad, but they're only one point off the relegation zone. It's really tight down there. I mm. mean, there's four points between 19th and 11th. So, basically, you're in, if you're in the bottom half, you're in trouble. In trouble. Here's another question 
Uh, this one's from Weldon Nino. Why do the press continually fall for Jose's deflecting? Most of the week, the papers were writing about the Battle of Old Trafford. Very little on his dire tactics at home with the team every bit as expensive as cities. Um, it's a fair point, this, but it's just so attractive to have a proper, you know, a, well, a proper set to. Also, the readers are, I don't mean them no disrespect, are uh, part of the problem here. Because, 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 <laughs> I think the, 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 the BBC they tweeted basically this week because I think they attracted some of the same criticism. Right. They're like, well, this was the second biggest story our sports website has had in 2017. Really? After Manchester United announced Romelu Lukaku, mm. yeah. so you know you can understand why it uh, you know why it gets the traction that it does when you know I think. A lot of us would rather we talk about something else. Even no, that was a very amusing. I am completely part of the problem because yeah. I was, we led with that on Monday because you know before we got onto anything else about the derby. Well, you'd be criticised if you didn't. I don't know, but N. Brady Eastham says uh, this business of dire tactics and Man United and Mourinho's failure. And that he said, well, would Man United actually be top of the league in a normal season? Normal in quotation marks. No. And are they really performing under par? Also, do you think the fact that Jersey still hasn't got it right indicates a change in its philosophy, etc.? Um, can I just say, in Breedy Eastern, if you call yourself the special one and you outspend everybody else and there's somebody who's winning 15 games in a row and it's not you, then you know, you've know you blown it, really. If you call yourself the special one and you don't and there's somebody else who's doing that, then... Yeah. Well, even if United had the points total they have now, mm. last year, they'd still be five points behind that Chelsea side. Ha. So... There you go. On the, on the point about um, the lack of coverage of the game itself, mm. I mean, the, the news agenda in this country, and in particular when you go to press conferences, you realise they're basically driven by tabloid newspapers. And the reporters in them have no interest in talking about the football, like genuinely no interest. Yeah. They, they go along to games, the game is a bit of a pain in the ass for them to have to write about a little bit of a sideshow. It is all about the press conference and the drama afterwards. So that's that's just... How, how it works, sadly. There's a long-held suspicion that managers are quite reluctant to talk about the nuts and bolts of a football game anyway, or, or maybe perhaps their kind of larger-scale larger strategy. They don't really want to give too much away, mm. and mixed with the idea that no-one's really interested in it anyway, among the tabloid journalists anyway. Do you think that Jose went into the... Do you think he deliberately started that fight to detract from the fact that his massively, expensively assembled side had underperformed and been outplayed to such an extent by their crosstown rivals and his old rival from Liga days. Oh, well, the idea that he went in to, to create the atmosphere to, to distract from the he, game he thought, itself. I will cause some trouble. <sighs> Maybe didn't know how far it would go. Uh, I will cause a story here and then we'll, we'll talk about that. I, I think there's um, there's a gross underestimation of just how worked up people get after matches. We saw it with Jurgen Klopp's interview the other day mm. to an extent where I think he can be excused for getting a little bit irritated when it's just five minutes after the final whistle. I don't think any football fans are... Um, a, you know, particularly calm after seeing a, you know, an unfortunate result and five minutes after. So everyone needs time to cool off. But um, I'd be, even for a man of his levels of calculation, mm. I'd be very surprised if Mourinho had that in mind when he, when he when he supposedly. I know I'm taking all my knowledge of this from that newspaper graphic that did the rounds this week in forensic detail uh -huh. of, what, of what supposedly went down in in the three rooms and one corridor. That sounds like a good film, actually. That, but um, <laughs> um, so yeah, this trajectories of bottles and and, oh, yeah. and paths so it was of Lukaku who who apparently threw the bottle. Is that right? That that cut Arteta's. See, we're doing it again. We're talking about this instant instead of mind you. The option is West Brom, Man United this weekend. So. Mm. Don't know how you feel about that, but apparently it was. Was it, is that right? Was that what the graphic said that it was Lukaku who well, uh, flung the bottle? 
there was uh, a City player threw a bottle at Mourinho, right. which I believe was the milk. Okay. And then there was a water bottle being thrown. Um, the, the phrase for Lukaku's actions was that he went around trying to slam dunk City players' heads. I, I'm not sure how that works. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, as with all these situations in, in tunnels, um, you, you get a lot of kind of uh, poetic licence going on. So yeah. you don't really know what's going on. Okay. I'm just surprised it was milk. I mean, well, they would have milk there. Yeah, I don't know. Oh, like yeah, milk and tea, recalcifying or... after, a, yeah. after a heavy mm. game. West Brom are taking on Man United this uh, this weekend, and I can only hope that Pardew doesn't do one of his dances or something in a celebratory fashion. Were they to? Were they? To, you're frowning, Michael. I read an interview with yeah. uh, Peter Crouch, very good interview in Four Four Two Magazine this oh. week, where he was talking about the 2006 FA Cup final. Yes. He was talking about Liverpool's preparations for it, and he said that one of the things that gave him motivation going into the game was that when West Ham had been uh, winning games on their run, Pardew was doing a silly little dance afterwards. Ah. And that's a completely different FA Cup final from the FA Cup final where he did the dance. Yeah. So he's given two different sides inspiration in FA Cup finals by doing silly little dances. Interesting to right. see Peter Crouch railing against the phenomenon of silly little dances. That's true as well. That is true. Although Pot and kettle. Yeah, well, and... Um... Anyway, West Brom are facing Man United this Sunday. We don't have to talk about it. It is the last game of Pogba's suspension. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it could be interesting, that one, that, because, uh, Pardew, we've yet really to see what he's going to do with this baggy right. side. We haven't, we haven't seen much of him. He hasn't made that kind of visible impact that perhaps Allardyce and Moyes have had. And uh, we, we're not really talking about him. All right, interesting. let's not, then. Mm. Let's move on, because uh, there are one or two other games we can talk about, either from midweek or from the upcoming round, but it's at midweek, uh, Leicester went to St Mary's and beat Saints 4-1. This was remarkable. Why? Cool. Two Japanese scorers for the first time in the Premier League. On opposing sides. Yeah, absolutely right. I thought Claude Puel going and, back to, to and St and also, and... and also the fact that Okazaki didn't fall over. <laughs> yes, goal. I was going to say that, yeah. <laughs> OK. <laughs> Yoshida uh, and uh, Okazaki and, of course, Claude Puel. I mean, there's so many storylines. This is what we should have led on. Um Kenny Bania says, what is behind Puel's excellent revival of Leicester? Michael. Uh, well, they're a, they're a good team on paper. Mm. Um, I'm not quite sure what was happening under Craig Shakespeare. Maybe he just didn't have the kind of leadership. He was clearly very good as an assistant manager. Uh, Puel has changed things a little bit. You know, he's got Mares playing more centrally right. um, from where he scored two fantastic goals in the last couple of weeks. And... Um, the the midfield just looks better as well. They just look more yeah. compact, more organised. Just mm. the kind of classic new manager things, really. I mean, some of these clubs, I think, are just going to have to accept they're going to have to appoint three managers a year because the the amount that football players seem to change when there's just a new manager they have to impress is is getting quite ridiculous, to be honest. But it wasn't yeah. even a contest last night. They completely destroyed Southampton. They had three 0 up in the first half. Um, Indeed, he won practically everything that there was to win in the middle of the pitch. And uh, and yeah, I mean, what their record now under Puel, Puel, I think only City and and Burnley have better it since he's been in charge. Well, they're, so they're scoring yeah. the sort of goals that you were seeing from them in fifteen, mm. sixteen, which is the kind of one, two quick passes upfield, someone no nonsense finish into the corner, and 
and then they go back and do it again. It's um, nice, swift counter-attacking, which is good to see. And we joke mm. about Okazaki. He's, he's kind of the first player you, if you take over the job, you think, well, maybe we can kind of upgrade on him. But he always kind of fights his yeah. way back and always just does a really good job in terms of his work rate, his movement. His bustle. And his bustle. And, yeah. and, and the second goal, really oh. good run in front of the defender, yeah. who in fact was um, Yoshida, his oh. compatriot. Just a really classic centre-forwards goal. Hmm. Excellent. Um, Leicester this weekend will be hosting Palace, who were briefly out of the relegation zone after to their last gasp win against Watford on Tuesday. Interesting from that whole penalty uh, narrative, Milivojevic is going to be uh, banned because he's had five yellows, so he won't be taking the penalties. Benteke, free run at them. There you go. Could he break his duck in the city where they say mid-duck? <laughs> That'll be the headline you'll see. <laughs> that, that's the headline you'll see. I think yeah. well, I think Palace are looking quite good. Um, but Leicester, come on, Michael Leicester. Yeah, yeah. And also, can we just give a, a quick mention to Wilfred Zaha, who's oh, just yeah. in incredible <laughs> form, and he was so good that when Palace were trying to get back in that game, he was moved out to the left. And um, Marco Silva put on an extra right back. So he played two right backs against him, <laughs> Yam and Firmino. And Zaha got bo- uh, got past them both and put the ball in for the um, for the winner. He's just, you know... He destroyed Yam completely. I mean, it, it didn't work out for him in Manchester United, but he just seems really comfortable at Palace. And mm. every week I see him, he's, he's just unplayable, as they say. All right, well, other games coming up. You've got Chelsea taking on Saints. Chelsea looked good uh, Tuesday night uh, away at Huddersfield, actually. Uh, Watford are taking on Huddersfield. Bournemouth are up against this Liverpool team that were held nil-nil by West Brom yeah. midweek. Bournemouth looked pretty good against Manchester United. Mm, uh, fairly unlucky, like, yeah. De Gea yeah. had to put in another very good performance to, to stop them and preserve that win for, for the Reds. Well, it's interesting background to this. That it was a 2-2 draw when they faced each other at Anfield. Uh, last season at the Vitality Stadium, a catastrophic 4-3. Liverpool was 3-0 up, and then uh, Carrius worked his magic. Do you remember this? That was brilliant. That was brilliant. Every one of Bournemouth's goals was kind of a cataclysmic comeback special. It was beautiful. <laughs> wow. Carrius uh, played last night, by the way. Uh, I, don't draw me into you know Klopp who he he played in that because <laughs> you haven't seen the training sessions have you? No, I haven't. No, exactly. I haven't seen the data either. Also true. Also true. I actually just just to go back. I do kind of agree with Rafa's point about that. Um, it was just it, the way he dismissed the question that. That's <laughs> 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 not an issue. It was great. Anyway, um, <laughs> Burnley, Burnley are in sixth place and they were. Up in fourth. Yeah. I think they were, what, four points off United, three ahead of Spurs at one stage? Yeah. Yeah. Very but, impressive. But despite not playing Spurs, particularly though. well against uh, against Stoke, mm. yet they still found a way to win. Mm. Yeah. I wish extended highlights of this game, and it was absolutely rubbish. <laughs> Genuinely really awful game, but Burnley, it was a classic Burnley win. They defended very well. They got mm. the ball forward. Whenever there's a gap in the opposition defence, they exploit it. And um, you'll be pleased to know, James, that um, they're kind of defying the XG as they... You know, more and more as they go along because they're not creating that many chances or that great chances, but right. their uh, shot conversion is fantastic. And, okay. and uh, Tuesday was another example of that. I mean, probably didn't play any better than Stoke, really, but just finished one chance. And that was quite that. often we see them putting together kind of 20 pass moves before a goal or a, a, a build up that will involve every member of the team before they score. And there's a lot of talk about how they've changed the way that they play. 
Uh, is that something that you would go along with particularly? I mean, they've changed to a certain extent. They've brought in Jack Cork, who's a really talented midfielder, very un-English midfielder, I'd say. Gets the ball, passes it sideways, moves into position, that kind of thing. But you look at the stats, they have the lowest pass completion rate in the Premier League. Mm. They've played more long balls than any other side in the Premier League. So they've improved a little bit, but it's still far below the kind of technical level of football that one would expect for a top side if, if you're putting Dyche forward for that kind of job. Which isn't to say that he couldn't do that job, but he hasn't shown evidence of it so far. Oh, okay. Well, that's your weekend then. Before we say goodbye, let's get the odds on those matches and more from Paddy Power with Ian McIntosh. Thank you, James. I'm joined, as always, by Mr Paddy Power. How are you, Paddy? I'm wonderful, so I am. A bit, a bit chilly, but I guess that's the time of year, isn't it? So it's, it's allowed to be chilly. It's seasonal, isn't it? It's exactly, deliciously exactly. seasonal. We're going to play hotshot jackpots, aren't we? We are indeed. And actually, do you know what? I'd be mildly optimistic about our chances this week. Oh, really? Well, let me tell people mm. what it is. Uh, you download the uh, free hotshot jackpot app, and then all you do is pick the first goal scorers from the six selected fixtures. And bosh, if you're right, half a million quid up for grabs. Just obviously make sure you're over 18. So let's look at these games. Arsenal, Newcastle. Goal scorer Lacazette, you reckon that's a fair shout? I think it's a fair shout. I mean, if someone's going to score, why not him? I mean, if they've, they've been sharing it around, they probably won't have to wait wait long enough for Giroud to come on and save the day. So uh, <laughs> so maybe Lacazette. Yeah, he's 11-4, to 4, so he's one of the favourites. So, uh, yeah, why not? Let's go for Lacazette. All right, Chelsea, a team I'm struggling to trust after what's happened, uh, against Southampton. Southampton obviously licking their wounds after last night, but Eden Hazard to come and make everything look a bit better? Yeah, well, he is. He's he's one of the keys to Chelsea. I mean, I know there's a few players in there that are kind of carrying the team at the moment, but I think he's one of them. Um, he's sixteen to five, so just a bit bigger than three to one, which means he's he's likely to do it. And Chelsea, I think they've got over that bit of a speed bump. They had a bit of a hiccup. I think the Champions League draw was a bit of a kick up the backside for them, and they kind of thought, like, we better learn how to play football again. We're going to be playing Barcelona. So, uh, so yeah, sixteen to five Hazard wouldn't put you off. Now, the big one of the weekend: Man City against Tottenham. No one else has stopped City. Can Spurs? I'm going to say no. I'm also going to say Gabriel Jesus. They can, but they probably won't, to be honest. I mean, City just <laughs> seem to just be that little bit above, don't they, everybody else? And Spurs, OK, they've, they've had a little dip, but they're back in. They seem to be back in their stride now. But City are odds on. They're one to two. It's, it's probably, like, as good a price you're going to get uh, about City at home to anyone this season. And uh, Jesus, yeah, he's three to one. I'm not sure. You just never know what City, who's going to, somebody's going to do it. You never know it's going to be, who it's going to be. But look, he's, I guess he's as good a choice as any. Probably wouldn't be my number one choice, but uh, he'd be in my top three or four anyway. So I, I can't, I can't begrudge Jesus, as they say in Ireland. <laughs> Liverpool are heading back to the scene of their trauma, uh, Bournemouth, where it all went so badly wrong last season. Uh, Sadio Mane for a goal there? Yeah, well, Mane's brilliant, isn't he? Like, he really is just a different player this year. But he's 4-1 to to score the first goal. Liverpool, you just pull your hair out if you're a Liverpool fan. I mean, like, what's going on? I mean, they, you can't trust them. You can't trust them. But if they are going to score, I mean, any any of their, their front four could be the one. But why not Mane, yeah? Everton-Swansea. Now, I've got a funny feeling about this one. Everton in great form. Swansea in, well, I mean, they, they got their first win. Um... I think Swansea will win this as well. I think I think Boney. I don't know. I, I I'm struggling to see Everton getting turned over by Swansea. To be honest with you, I think uh, yeah. I just think Rooney's got his, his gander up. He's really enjoying life. I mean, he's he's obviously the kingpin in there at the moment. Big Sam has probably filled him full of confidence, and he's uh, he's banging the goals in for fun. So I'd be going Rooney rather than Boney. But uh, sure, who am I? I'm only the bookie. You can download the Hot Shot Jackpot app. 
and find out these odds and more at paddypower.com. 18 plus only, begambleaware.org. And of course, when the fun stops, stop. Uh, speaking of stopping, that brings us pretty much to the end of today's Totally Football show. Why has the fun stopped? It has, really. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> anything. G chat, wasn't it? <laughs> Before we let listeners get on with their busy lives, let's say goodbye to James Horncastle. Goodbye. Adam Hurry. Goodbye for me. Thank you very much. No, thank you for being with us. And you, Michael Cox. Goodbye. Uh, surprisingly uncontroversial edition with you today. <laughs> or perhaps you think it was. No, no, no controversial. Well, Un- controversial. Yeah. yeah. Get rougher on for the for the argy bargy. Yeah. Yes. The needle. Excellent. All right then. Uh, many thanks to you, listener. Uh, we'll return on Monday. Do join us then and have a great weekend in the meantime. The Totally Football Show is a Muddy Knees Media production. For sales and advertising, email sales at muddykneesmedia.com.